Good morning. morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love, for the promise of Jesus and the second coming, and we so look forward to that with eagerness, and we are so interested and intent on cooperating with you to take this final message of mercy to the world, to lighten the world, to hasten the day that we can be out of this dark world and in the eternal happiness that you have for us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we're doing lesson number five in the quarterly Ephesians, and the title is Horizontal Atonement, the Cross and the Church. And on Sabbath's lesson, the last paragraph reads, in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, Paul sees the cross of Christ as making a dramatic difference, destroying such barriers and walls. Vertically, the cross dissolves alienation, reconciling humans with God. Horizontally, it reconciles people with each other. The cross removes enmity and brings peace between Jews and Gentiles, making of them one new humanity. Together, they become a new temple, a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Do you agree? Yes. Does the cross and Jesus Christ and his work and ministry remove enmity and bring peace between different people groups? I agree that it is absolutely supposed to do that. But I also observe that through history, many people who've claimed the belief in the cross and Jesus Christ as their Savior, who held up the cross as a symbol of their faith, held up the cross as they marched on the Crusades to kill people who didn't believe in Jesus, uh, who uh, burnt people at the stake who didn't believe in the Jesus that they were advocating with the cross, held slaves, burned crosses and yards of people of different backgrounds, burned down churches of uh, black Americans. And I have observed that currently in the world today, there are 41,000 different Christian groups all claiming the cross of Jesus Christ. uh, Yet, it's supposed to bring unity. We have this fracturing And that within Christian homes, what the data shows in America anyway, that in Christian homes, those who claim the cross, those who claim Jesus as their Savior, addiction rates are no different than in non-Christian homes. Pornography use is no different than non-Christian homes. Child abuse and spouse abuse are no different than non-Christian homes. So while I agree that the impact of accepting Jesus as their Savior is supposed to result in the unity of people and breaking down of hostilities and resolution of enmity and division, that is not what history demonstrates has happened and what we see happening for those who claim they're Christian. The question is why? Why is that the case? If the cross of Christ is supposed to bring unity, peace, cessation of hostilities, why do we not see that among the people who are claiming publicly that they're Christian? I'm going to say I think it's a very straightforward reason. Because there's a false gospel and a false Christianity. It's not the true. It's not the genuine. It's close to the genuine, just like if you want an effective counterfeit dollar bill, If it's going to be effective, it has to be very close to the real. So close that the average person, somebody dropped a a good counterfeit in your hands, the average person can't tell the difference. And and the counterfeit gospel is so close that the average person doesn't seem to be able to tell the difference. Paul described, oh, but but the, the counterfeit doesn't have real true purchasing power. It's a fraud. And the counterfeit gospel has no gospel healing, transforming power. 
And so Paul describes this in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Notice where he puts this in the stream of human history. But mark this, there will be terrible times. When? That's where we're living right now, in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. See if you see this in the world. See if you see this within the body of people who claim to be Christian. Uh, Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive. Child abuse rates, spouse abuse rates, no different in Christian homes than non-Christian. Abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not having... uh, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But notice, having a form of godliness but denying its power. I have nothing to do with them. These people Paul is describing here are not the godless. This is not the woke left. This is not the atheist. This is not the evolutionist. This is not the agnostic. Those people certainly do not have a form of godliness. These people have a form of godliness. They have a religion. They have a religious system. But they deny the power that transforms lives, thus their religion and their claims to believe in Jesus keeps them divided, hostile, abusive, selfish, as the rest of the world. And what is the power they deny? Paul says in Romans 1, 16 to 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. There is genuine good news. There's a real gospel message from God that has power and results in people becoming righteous through faith, through trust. Paul describes this elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Notice, we believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. This is substitution for a purpose. Notice the purpose. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, substitution, taking our place, but for what reason? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Understand, what does it mean to become something? If you become a husband or become a wife, it, it changes you, doesn't it? Aren't you in a different role with different. Yes, Linda. Well, at one point in my life, I was a transplant case manager, and many of the transplants were stem cell transplants. For cancers and so on, sickle cell anemia even. And, and the interesting thing was a person would get their own cells annihilated and then the stem cell transplant would come in and take over. Uh, so much so that in some cases it took over the, the recipient with the, with the donor's uh, DNA all through their body wow. eventually within a matter of months. So, so it is through the bone marrow that we have our stem cells, and our stem cells replace cells that wear out throughout our body. And so you would find cells throughout the body having the donor's DNA. Not all the cells, but cells throughout the body, of various types of cells. That, that would be very common. And in some cases, the one case I read about uh, particularly was a, a criminal pathology lab 
the criminal investigation lab, and one of their co-workers had that done. And within four months, every cell of his body, he's an exception, but in his case, every cell of his body was the donor cell. Wow. Interesting. Wow. Every cell in his body that they tested. Okay. It is through Jesus that we receive the true gospel and through Jesus that we become the righteousness of God and live, live actively here and victoriously. We live new lives. The true gospel causes something real to happen within us and we are changed, transformed. The enmity is taken away. We experience peace with God and unity with others who've experienced the same transformation. Not others who make a, a, a claim and have no transformation. We're not unified with them. Right. We're unified with others who have Jesus actually living and transforming, living in their hearts and transforming their lives. But what is this gospel power? What is this gospel power? And what is the counterfeit gospel that dominates the world and denies and obstructs the transforming power? Last week I presented from the historical record the irreconcilable differences between worshiping God as creator, understanding his laws as the laws upon which he built reality and life itself to operate, and then seeing God, which automatically, when you see his laws operating this way, it automatically leads you to recognize him as our healer, our savior, our restorer, our transformer, our deliverer, versus the Romanization of Christianity in which God's law functions no different than Roman law, a system of rules made up by a rule maker who then has to police the breaches of the rule and punish rule breakers, which automatically cause you to see God as the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death as punishment for sin. It is the lie that God's law is imposed and functions like human law that perverts the gospel and how we understand God's character and government and cheats people of the power to live victorious lives. I'm going to, I'm going to walk you through this step by step and show you how, the impact it has on, on people. And I'm going to demonstrate that the single lie, God's law functioning like human law, results in a form of godliness with no power to change lives. In fact, this idea that God's law works like human law results in a theology in which the deity that is worshipped is an irrational being, a being who is contradictory and unjust, an untrustworthy being that causes us to suspend our thinking and have to take things on faith because it makes no sense, and make up theologies that have their function. The function of the theology that is taught to hide us and protect us from that God because if he saw us, he'd have to hurt us. That's what the Romanization of Christianity is done. The following is from a book entitled The Cross of Christ, uh, printed by the Adventist Review Publishing House. Several years ago when I was in discussion with uh, local church leaders regarding uh, our views and, and their view, which diverge on this question of law, and they see things very penal legal, they insisted that this book would be the basis for our discussions, and, and we had to read it, and, and we discussed the various elements in this book. And I'm going to walk you just through some sections of this book to show you that, that this stuff that I'm saying, I don't make it up. And this idea that there's this imperial, legal fraud infecting Christianity is, is not only there, 
It is promoted and advanced as the gospel. So this is from the book, The Cross of Christ, page 71. In Romans 3, justification does not mean to make righteous, but rather to declare righteous. What did we just read in, 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 the, in the Bible? Make righteous. That we are declared righteous. No, we become righteous. No, no, that, but notice the, the penal fraud immediately replaces becoming righteous with being declared righteous. The ground of justification, as Paul points out, Christ's death is Christ's death. Uh, the means by which it becomes effective for the individual is faith. Although people do have a legal relationship to God, it is also true that that relationship is much more than just a legal one. God's love for humanity impels him to give people what they do not deserve. Interestingly enough, his, God's, legal practices are just the opposite of the instructions he gave for human judges, who were to justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Anyone who justifies the wicked, we read in Proverbs, and condemns the righteous is an abomination to the Lord. The issue we must face at this point is how God can break the rules that he set forth for human judges. God's going to break his own rules, folks. It, it is that type of problem. Morris claims that troubles Paul in Romans 3. How can God be righteous if he forgives people who have no right to be forgiven? One would expect a just God to punish those who deserve it. That is what justice means. But in the past, Paul claims in verse 25, God did not invariably punish sin. Sinners went on living. Pause right here. We've got another paragraph in this quote, but I want to discuss what we've read so far. First off, under what type of law does justice mean punishment? Imposed. Imposed. Roman law. That's what it means. This whole description is a, remember Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks? The good man brings forth good. This whole description is a confession that they reject God as creator. They do not worship his law and his government as design law. They worship a creature rather than the creator. See, the creator builds reality. His laws are the laws reality operate upon. We are creatures. Can any of you speak reality into existence? Can any of you build the laws upon which reality function and sustain those laws? So what do we do? What do creatures do? Make up rules that must be externally enforced with punishment. If your God functions that way, you're not worshiping the creator. You're worshiping a creature. Who is the creature who wants to replace God in your worship? Satan. Satan. This is Satan's view. Do you remember the quote last week from Desire of Ages, page 761? If you don't, I'll quote it again. I didn't put it in the things to read because I just kind of inserted it here as a sidebar. But in the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed. His justice was inconsistent with mercy and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. What is this paragraph arguing? Justice requires that God must punish sin. That's the opening of the controversy. That's Satan's position from the beginning. This is an infection. It's a fraud. It obstructs God's plan to heal and change lives. This is why the Adventist church hasn't finished its work, its work of bringing people back to worship the creator. Because you can't worship the creator if you're worshiping a God who functions like a creature. Do you see how close it is, though? 
The language is so close. It's so similar. It's one deviation off. Just one. They should have remembered what Paul wrote in other places that no one will be justified by the law. And he wrote in Romans 3.25 that a righteousness from God apart from the law has been revealed. Paul is making the entire case in Romans that the plan of salvation is not penal legal. It's something else. Jesus himself said, see, human governments, it's all external. It's behavior. It's enforcement. Jesus said the kingdom of God is found where? Specifically, he said it straight out. The kingdom of God is, and he placed it somewhere. Within you. Human governments are not concerned with what's going on within you. They're concerned. Man looks on the... The Lord looks on the... Human governments are external, with external uh, monitoring of behavior and external enforcement. God changes the heart. I will write my law on your heart and mind. I'll give you a new spirit. Recreate you in the mind. Circumcise your heart by the spirit. Take out the heart of stone. Put in a tender heart. The kingdom of God is working to fix the brokenness inside us that Adam did to the species. That's what it's doing because it's how reality functions. But Tim, at the end of time, which do you think would be a worse punishment, to be burned or to be shown everything you did and all the ripple effects of, of the bad things you did through life or the good things you didn't do through life, how things would have, you know, how you affected everyone around you, including your family, your children, or whatever, by your behaviors. To me, anyway, that would be the worst punishment, more than just burning up. It would, to me, it would be worse to be shown Everything. That's what happens when the fires of infinite truth and love burn free and one's denial does not protect one from understanding the reality of their own condition and what they've done. That's exactly right. Yeah. Remember the Bible said God's ways are just like our ways. No, it doesn't actually say it. It says that God's ways are not like our ways. His ways are lower than our ways. No, his ways are higher than our ways. And it says, and under this context, his ways are not like ours. His ways are higher than ours. It specifically says God freely pardons. Amen. Amen. That's what it says. Thank God. Yet we somehow forget all this. Let's go and finish this quote out. It says, now Mars suggests you can argue that this shows that God, God to be merciful or compassionate or kind or forbearing or loving, but you cannot argue that it shows him to be just. And they emphasize the word just there. Because God had not always punished sinners, some would be tempted to doubt his justice. Only if you... Think, think this word justice. How, what defines what's just or not? The law you believe in. The law of any organization or circumstance. It's the, it's the law that defines what's just or right. Mm-hmm. For instance, I've given this example before. In boxing, it is actually just or right to punch somebody in the face. In soccer, it's unjust to do that. It's the rules of the law of the, of the system you're operating within that determines what's right or just, isn't it? Okay. And so their justice, and, their, and, and they're telling you again that in their view, justice requires punishment. Then what kind of law do they understand? Are they, are they telling you? God's government runs on what type of law? Human law. God's no different than a Caesar. God is no higher than a created being. 
God's ways are no different than what we do. This is why the Lord hasn't come. You can have the right doctrinal list and the wrong God. And I'm going to tell you right now, Satan doesn't care if you worship on the Sabbath as long as you're worshiping him. So can you hear from this, this quotation alone how the gospel is corrupted by Romanism, this imposed law? Can you see it? Yes. And the reason they have problems, this supposed contradiction, this, this is hard to figure out, is because uh, they don't understand what heavenly justice is, what God's actual righteousness is, what the plan of salvation is. They've misrepresented it all through a human system. And it makes out God to be the exact opposite of what Jesus revealed him to be, his true nature. This was the problem of the Jews that they held, one of the reasons they rejected Christ. And when Christians accept this imposed law lie, they also reject the truth that Christ brought. Listen to this historical quote. What I believe the SDA church is supposed to be teaching to the world, it's from a book you might have heard of, The Desire of Ages. And the context is Jesus healing a man who was born blind. And the question was asked, who sinned that this man was born blind, him or his parents? And this author then describes Jesus' answer and what the lessons were supposed to be. And uh, we'll, we'll recount from other biblical evidence why this is the right lesson to draw. See if you agree with this or don't agree with this. And see if you do agree with it. Not only do you agree with what's written here, do you see that this is the message being presented by the Adventist church today? Or have we somehow diverted away from it? It was generally believed by the Jews that sin is to be punished in this life. Every affliction was regarded as the penalty of some wrongdoing, either of the sufferer himself or of his parents. It is true that all suffering results from the transgression of God's law, but this truth had become perverted. Just all suffering, because if there's no sin, there'd be no pain, suffering, or death. It doesn't mean... So if you have a cancer because you drank toxic water, you didn't commit any sin, but there'd be no toxic water and there'd be no cancer if sin wasn't in the world. Right. Okay? All right. Continuing on with the quote. Satan, the author of sin and all its results, had led men to look upon disease and death proceeding from God as punishment arbitrarily inflicted on account of sin. Pause. Our church has rejected only half of this lie. We still teach the other half. We've rejected the lie that physical sickness is God punishing sin in this life. We don't teach that. We reject it, don't we? That's but we actively teach that God is required to punish sin by inflicting death. Death comes from God as an infliction and not only is he going to kill, it's even taught that he will perform miracles using his power specially to torment and torture people for the length of time they need to suffer for their sins before he kills them. We still teach this lie about the death. Yes or no? Yes. Yes. And when we worship a God who we teach injustice must use his power to inflict death, then we create theologies that's primary function is to hide us and protect us from that God. We have an intercessor pleading to him, covering us, erasing records, substituting other records for our records so the Father won't know, won't see. Yes? I'm not disagreeing, but isn't there a quote 
that says that Ellen White says that some will burn longer than other people? Yes. Yes, there is. And why would that be the case? I don't know. So I would encourage you, if you have that question, you get several resources. We've explained it at length. It's explained in my book, The God-Shaped Brain. It's explained in our uh, magazine. Uh, which, which one of our magazines? It's out there on the table. I believe it is The Three Angels. The Three Angels. And, and Yes, it's in The Three Angels magazine. It's explained in our website on the blog. Type in hell, and you will find it is explained there. I've explained it in multiple places, and I've explained it in this class multiple times. We're going to go late today, folks. <laughs> Before you can explain why some suffer longer, you have to first understand what the fire is. If you don't understand what the fire is, then you won't understand why some suffer longer. So what do we understand the fire to be from Scripture? Isaiah 33, verse 14. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who can dwell with the eternal burning? Verse 15, he who walks righteously and keeps his hands away from murder, bribe, and extortion spends eternity in the fire, not the wicked. That doesn't compute with most of what people teach. Most people teach the fire is a place you don't want to go and a place you don't want to be. But as you actually study scripture, you discover every time God shows up in person, it's described as a consuming fire. When he talked to, when he talked to Moses at the bush, the bush is described as doing what? The burning bush, but it didn't get consumed. And he came... When he came down to Sinai and gave the law, the laws the Sinai had a consuming fire, but it didn't melt. When Solomon's temple was dedicated, it says the priest couldn't enter the day of the dedication because God's glory, fiery glory, filled it. It was too bright for them. It says in Ezekiel 28 that Lucifer, before his fall, used to walk among, quote, the fiery stones of God's presence, unquote. It says in, um, it says in Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. In Revelation, it says we won't need a sun to light the new heaven or the new earth because Jesus' presence, God's presence will be its light. And the lie that Satan has perpetrated upon the world is the place you don't want to go and the place you don't want to be is the place of eternal burning and consuming fire, and that is God's very presence. The righteous will live and be transformed in it. Daniel 7, ancient ancient of days takes his throne, rivers of fire come out from before him, and 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands and thousands are standing in this fire with no harm. Uh, Moses, in his fallen body that did eventually die, goes up to the mountain and spends 40 days in God's presence, and God hides him in the cleft of the the rock and, and, and puts his hand on him and passes behind, and somehow Moses sees God's backside, hindward parts, it says in King James. And Moses comes off the mountain with what? His face is radiating something that's described as fire. Did Moses have third-degree burns? Did his whiskers catch fire? Now, what did the children of Israel do? They caused them agony and suffering because this is the fires of love and truth coming from infinite God, love and truth. And in their conscious guilt, in their corruption, it caused conviction and, and, and guilt and shame, and it caused them to back away. They didn't want to be in the presence of that. And so we see this. And Moses came down with favor and, and blessing from God and, and loves the people, yet they back away from him. And in the second coming, Jesus comes and they beg for the mountains to fall on them and hide them from him who sits on the throne. Not because he's angry, but because they are corrupted in conscious guilt. They can't stand the heavenly truth. And Jesus said, those in darkness don't want to come into the light, lest their evil deeds be... Now, all of that put together, what happens at the very end, God unveils his life-giving glory, 
infinite love and truth, those who have been restored to at one with him, we love it. We thrive in it. We are one with him. We actually begin radiating even brighter than Moses because we'll have immortal bodies be transformed. We'll be like the angels, brilliant and bright. But the wicked who have hardened themselves in rebellion and selfishness, what happens to a liar that has been denying, oh, I only abused that kid to help him grow up and know how to handle themselves. I wasn't really taking advantage of that person. That was really good for them. That's denial and distortion, okay? And when they come into the presence of infinite truth, their lies won't work anymore. They have actual real awareness of what their evil did to themselves and to others and what will be like. And so the longer that you have rebelled in sin and selfishness, with the deeper levels of lies that you have told yourself, the longer it takes for the truth to burn through. Those who have short lives, a little bit of lies, the truth burns through very quickly, and they surrender and say, I don't want to live in this universe, I give up. And those who have deeper layers of lies and distortions, they pile up wrath for the day of wrath because they're piling up the lies and the rejection that it takes longer for the truth to burn through. So some are many days burning, but it's not an infliction. It is the pain and suffering that the condition causes when God no longer shields them from his infinite presence. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Satan, the author of sin and all its results, had led men to look upon disease and death proceeding from God as punishment arbitrarily inflicted on the account of sin. And this is what the church still teaches. Hence, one uh, whom some great affliction or calamity had fallen had the additional burden of being regarded as a great sinner. Thus, the way was prepared for the Jews to reject Jesus, who hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, was looked upon by the Jews as stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And I gave multiple quotes last week. That's quoting Isaiah. He took upon himself our infirmities and our iniquities in order to overcome. Yet we esteemed him or, or, or viewed him as being stricken by God and smitten by him. And what does the penal legal theologies teach? That God in justice had to execute justice upon sin and thus the sinners. And in this execution, the Son of God took our place according to God's uh, plan. And that God was required to kill the innocent and, and so forth and so on. They, they put God in the place of strike. God knew this. He prophesied on Isaiah. He's going to come to fix the condition. We're going to misunderstand, and we're going to claim God is killing a son. And then this uh, last quote, last, last paragraph in this quotation. God had given a lesson designed to prevent this. The history of Job had shown that suffering is inflicted by Satan and overruled by God for the purposes of mercy. But Israel did not understand this lesson. The same error for which God had reproved the friends of Job was repeated by the Jews in their rejection of Christ and is repeated by the Christian church today. It's, very so, it's so simple. Once we realize God is the creator, the builder of reality, and his laws are the laws upon which all life are designed to function. God is working through Christ, and he uses power to restrain, to shield, to protect, to heal, to redeem, to recreate. He doesn't use power to inflict harm. He will use power to discipline, and the one under discipline may misunderstand and think they're being harmed. But I can tell you, and I thought that as a kid when I was being disciplined, when, that, uh, when my bottom was being warmed, I thought I was being harmed. I was not being harmed. I was being protected. Many misunderstand what's happening in Scripture. All human governments in the sinful world op- op- operate on external rules monitoring behavior and infliction of punishments. God's kingdom operates on the heart. Thus, in this sinful world, God is like a loving parent who will give various rules 
to help protect his children while they're still childlike and to help diagnose and bring us to conviction that there's something wrong that we need to be healed from. But his kingdom doesn't work on a system of rules. In other words, he added laws because we needed it, just like a parent will add rules. And the more disruptive the child, the more rules the child gets. Isn't that true? And that's what we've seen. And this is what Paul said in Galatians, that the law was added. And as I pointed out last week, the SDA church had this message brought to it that I'm sharing with you about God and his creatorship and design law in 1888. And at the 1888 General Conference, the leadership rejected it and chose to cling to impose law. One of the major issues at that conference was the question of law. Jones and Wagner taught that the law in Galatians that was added was the Ten Commandments, the moral law. God added the Ten Commandments because we needed it. The, The people who clung to the legal view rejected that and said it was only the ceremonial law that was added. And they rejected it because in their mind, not understanding design law, they believed that if the Ten Commandments were added, that means that the Sabbath is not an eternal law. And so the Ten Commandments have to be eternal. They couldn't have been added. And here's what, in the aftermath, Ellen White wrote after that meeting, which was supposed to be what the SDA church should be teaching. The message is to lighten the world. See if this is what you consistently hear, or do you hear the view that it was the ceremonial law that was added? So this is out of uh, Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 233 and 234. I am asked concerning the law in Galatians, what is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ? I answer both the ceremonial and the moral code of the Ten Commandments. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. In this scripture, the Holy Spirit through the apostle is speaking especially of the moral law. Do you understand the Ten Commandments were not always in existence? Many people don't. They think they were in heaven. I will tell you, angels did not have a law to honor their mothers and fathers. (laughs) They did not have a law that said sins would pass down two and three generations. I will tell you, Adam and Eve didn't have that law because there were no sins to pass down two and three generations in Eden. That law was added after sin for our need, for a purpose. Before I unpack why the law was added and how it functions and the grace that God has shown us in giving it, I want to revisit this quote out of the cross of Christ that we read already, this one sentence that it started with. In Romans 3, justification does not mean to make righteous, but rather to declare righteous. You remember that? We just read it a moment ago. This is classic penal legal substitutionary statement that righteousness does not mean what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, that we become the righteousness of God. Becoming righteous is healing. It's empowering. It results in victorious living. It results in the unity of people regardless of ethnic backgrounds. People who become righteous do not abuse their families. Would you say, yeah, I heard an amen. Yes. That's, if you become righteous, you don't abuse your families. 
They give glory to God. People who become righteous give glory to God by living out his character in how they treat others. And they become lights to the world, lighting the world to a different way of functioning. Bless those who curse you. Bless, uh, bless, do not, do not curse them. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse them. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Don't retaliate. No eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. That's Matthew 5. We show a different method of governing and treating others. And it's the difference between the kingdom of God that works on hearts and minds and transforms life and the kingdom of the world which, which punishes bad behavior. Thus the righteous give glory to God at a time in history when people need to see the light so they can make a right judgment about God. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. People need to stop worshiping an imperial dictator and start worshiping him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and, all, and the fountains of water. But this truth is denied when people replace God's design law with human law and teach that justification is not actually putting people right with God, not actually making them righteous, but declaring them to be righteous even though they remain unrighteous. But don't they call that sanctification? They, they call it justification when you're declared righteous and sanctification when you're made righteous? They, they would probably make that distinction, but it's not true. And I'm going to walk you through this. Not only does this idea that righteousness is not what we become, it's what we're declared, uh, this makes God out to be a fraud, a trickster, a being who declares things to be one way when they're actually another way. I'm declaring them to be righteous even though they're not. This would be like declaring someone to be a female even though they're a male. That's the same thing, folks. Declaring someone who is male to be a female does not make them a female. Declaring someone to be righteous, even though they're not, does not make them righteous. It's a fraud. It's a con job. There is reality, and then there is fantasy, falsehood, make-believe. The penal substitutionary view of atonement is fantasy. It's make-believe. Claiming people are declared righteous when they're actually not righteous. Makes God into be a liar. He's saying it's this way when it's really this way. This isn't true. I got another question. Yeah, I got to finish this point. <laughs> because I'm in the middle of a point. I need to bring it to close. Scripture tells us that when Adam sinned, he changed his very nature, and he had been given an ability by God to create beings in his own image. God had given him ability before his fall to be fruitful and multiply and create beings in his own image. He'd given them this ability. And they corrupted themselves, and the only types of beings they could make were not sinless, holy beings, but were sinful beings. And so it says in Psalm 51, we are born in sin, we're conceived in iniquity. We're born with a condition we did not choose. How many of you chose to be born with a sin condition? None of us chose it. We are not born guilty. We're born terminal, dead in trespass and sin. It'd be like being born with HIV. A baby born HIV infected did not do anything wrong, but has a condition that without remedy results in symptoms and eventual death. We're born with a condition that we didn't choose, but without remedy will result in symptomology, we call those sins, and then death. But the Bible teaches, uh, and the natural state of this heart that we're born with 
What's the natural state of the carnal heart with which we're born according to Scripture? Love and trust toward God or enmity and distrust toward God? So our natural state that we inherit from Adam is enmity and distrust toward God. That's the natural state. And the Bible teaches that Abraham trusted God. And after Abraham had his heart changed from enmity and distrust to love and trust, then and only then did God declare, account, reckon, or recognize that Abraham was justified or set right or put right because Abraham's heart was set right with God. That's actual justification. Setting what's wrong right again. And what is wrong is the heart and mind of human beings who live on fear and selfishness and distrust of God. And that heart condition has to be set right. And Abraham trusted God and God recognized his heart is now right with me. Not there yet. God never declares someone to be righteous while they remain unrighteous. God never declares someone to be his friend like he did Job. He's perfect and righteous in all his ways. I can trust Job. Never declares someone righteous, trustworthy friend of his while they remain in rebellion and hostility against him. That wouldn't be truthful. That wouldn't be truthful. Okay? God is the God of reality. God sets people right with him. He restores us to trust. He gives us new hearts and right spirits. He gives us a new life, the mind of Christ. He writes the law upon our hearts and minds. He removes the dead, stony heart and puts in a living, tender heart. This is reality. The penal legal view is a lie based on the lie that God's law functions like human law, and it creates a form of godliness with no power. And I will pause, and then I'm going to come back and give you an example of why we have this Christianity that has a form of godliness with no power. I'm going to give you an example. Go ahead. Okay. The text in Romans 4.17. Faith counts those things that are not as though they were. Are they using that text to say, even though we're not perfect, God looks as... Looks so read, read, read the larger context. Start with Romans 1, read all the way through, and then read a chapter or two behind it, and then ask your question. But I'm not going to pause and answer that at the moment. Yeah, you need to have that in context. So let me give you this example of the corruption and the destruction and the perversion of this fictional legal theology that dominates Christianity and why there is no power to change lives. Uh, in order to do this, you have to understand, again, the difference between design law and imposed law. God uh, creates reality, and his laws are what life and health operate upon. If you violate those laws on the physical level, you suffer physical health problems. You can't have physical health while violating the laws of health. If you violate the spiritual laws, like commit adultery, You can't have peace in your own heart and mind or a healthy marriage if you're cheating on your spouse. You can't do it. Even if your spouse doesn't know. If you're cheating, you know you will have guilt, you will have shame, you'll have anxiety, you'll have fear, you'll worry about being caught, you'll worry about being found out. It will actually cause an activation of the fear circuits. It will increase inflammatory cascades. It results in ruin and destruction of your physical health over time to be out of harmony with the spiritual laws. The plan of salvation is God's work achieved through Jesus Christ to eliminate the death-causing principle and restore the life-causing principle in humanity. God's perfect living law back into the living temple, the human being that Christ achieved as a real human being who was tempted in every way just like we are. So all human born since Adam have been born with this condition and have the option to participate in the remedy procured for us 
by Jesus Christ. And notice how, and condemnation does not come because we have the condition. Condemnation comes from rejecting the remedy. Like a child born HIV positive is not condemned because of the condition. And there's a free remedy, an antiviral meds that will put the, viral, the virus into remission, but they refuse to ever take it. They're not condemned for the condition. They're, they're condemned for the refusing the remedy that's freely given. And so this is what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John three sixteen through 20. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. This is the verdict. You stand condemned already. Why? No, condemned already because your condition's terminal. And if you don't accept the remedy, you're going to die of the condition. You're already dying in a terminal state. The verdict is light, remedy, truth, love has come. And if you won't accept it, there's no remedy for your condition. You're going to die. So let's give this some. Um, well, I have several, several other Bible quotes to give you as well about why God used law, why he gave the law, why it was added. First Timothy 1, 8 through 11. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law was uh, made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers, for the rebels, for the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers for the per- and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is, he has entrusted to me. Notice that the law was not given for the righteous. Does that mean the righteous are lawless? No. The righteous have the law written in their heart. They live in harmony with God's law. They are right. They're set right. They're put right. They live out the law. Then, then why was this not given? Think of an MRI. MRIs were not made for healthy people. They weren't. They were made for sick people to look in the deep inward parts that you can't see with your naked eye to see where there's pathology, where there's sickness, where there's tumor, where there's necrosis, where there's infection. It's to look inside to see where there's brokenness that you can't see from the outside. The MRI was given to look in and see sickness. When people have perfect health in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no need for MRIs. But how do they argue that that was eternal and existed in heaven if it was made for all those types of people? That's because they have this rule system. They have an assumption. It never is questioned. This is how God's law works. Paul makes it very clear in Romans 7, 7, where he says, I would not have known what sin was except for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Understand, Paul used to think that what made you righteous was having a lust for your neighbor's wife and wanting to, to, to have an adulterous relationship, but choosing with your willpower to say no. Oh, I really wanted to, but I didn't. That makes me good and righteous. <laughs> Until the commandment came. And he realized that in the 10th, he can't even want to. What behavior can you do to not covet? But behaviorally, this is the point. The covet just, the commandment enlightens all the others to show that it's not behavioral. It's always about what's happening in the heart. Paul realizes that through the diagnostic efficacy of the law, that all his legal religious behaviors 
thus far in his life that he thought made him worthwhile and righteous are actually worthless because law-keeping cannot cure hearts and minds of selfishness. And that's his whole point in Romans. You can't fix the heart by law-keeping. So I'm going to skip on down because we're really running out of time. And I'll give you this example that I've used before, but I think it brings home very powerfully the fraud of penal substitutionary theology. Loving parents will make up rules for their small children of various kinds. One common one for small children is that they must brush their teeth regularly. Now, the reason parents make up such rules is not to create a legal code of conduct and create a legal oversight enforcement and judicial tribunal committee in their home. This is not the reason for the rules. It is because of one of the design laws, second law of thermodynamics. If you're not putting energy into a system, the system will decay. But a child is too immature to understand that. And even if they can understand it, they're often too immature to govern themselves to make themselves do it, even though they know the benefits of doing it. And so in their immaturity, a parent will step in in love and provide a rule with oversight and discipline, not punishment. Discipline means to disciple or to teach. Punishment means to exact vengeance upon a loving parent whose child didn't brush their teeth will not seek to take vengeance upon them. They will seek to lovingly discipline them to teach them. It's a big difference, okay? But parents will do that for their child. And as we grow up, there comes a point in time when our parents' rule is no longer needed. It doesn't become invalidated. It doesn't become wrong. It becomes pointless because somewhere in our maturity, it became part of us and we wrote it in our hearts and minds and we willingly brush and even now floss our teeth because we want to live healthy lives. And we have great appreciation looking back on our parents that they would stoop to meet us in our childishness and and even take the role of being an enforcer and allowing us to misunderstand mommy's mad or, or, or mommy's mean or the problem is that if I don't do it, mommy will punish me. And in our childishness, how many thought that the problem with not doing what mommy said was that mommy would punish, not that our teeth would decay? And our parents loved us so much to step in and allow that misunderstanding. God in the Old Testament did this over and over again, stepping in and allowing himself to be viewed as the enforcer while he was trying to protect them from the destruction of their own behaviors. But now, let's take this now for the child who's raised in a legalistic home in which there are appropriate rules, but no reasons behind them. The rules are right, but they're never explained. The child never learns. Maybe the rule is to brush the teeth. Maybe the rule is to behave a certain way on the Sabbath. Uh, Whatever the rule is, the rule is not, not really wrong. It just was never told as to the reason for it. And so the only reason the child ever learned to brush their teeth in this home was that if I don't, I'll get punished. That's the only reason they ever had. What happens when they turn 18 or 20 and move out? So when the child finally moves out on their own, yay, free from all those rules. I no longer have to brush my teeth. And so they don't. And at first, because it's been so deeply ingrained and the threats have been so consistent, they're a little anxious and nervous and they look around watching for some punishment to come, but none comes. And after a week or so, they go, I knew all those rules were ridiculous. I knew my parents are just legalists and, and so forth and so on, a religious conformist and so forth. And so they quit brushing and they forget about it. And about eight to 10 months later, They find themselves suffering in terrible pain with terrible tooth decay, and they call their parents crying, Mom, Dad, I'm so sorry. You raised me better than this. 
but I didn't listen. I should have listened, but I didn't, and I've stopped brushing my teeth, and I, I'm hurting so bad I can't sleep at night. I, I don't know what to do. What do I do? And the parents respond with love and reassurance. We still love you. We're not mad at you. Uh, fortunately for you, there's an expert at our church who knows how to help people who've gone off into wild living like you and have, <laughs> and have been breaking the rules and are now suffering. And so they schedule an appointment for, for this child to visit the pastor who tells them that Jesus came to earth and brushed his teeth perfectly. And he flossed too. And he, and, and, and he never had the smallest amount of any tooth decay whatsoever. You were told that if you accept the legal toothbrushing as Jesus as your substitute, then in heaven Jesus would go to the heavenly father, the heavenly dentist, and... And he will plead his perfect dental record in your behalf. The pastor tells you that when God examines your heavenly dental records, because you've accepted Jesus, God, will no, God the Father will no longer be aware of your disobedience and failing to brush. And your dental decay, then all the pain and suffering, he will not be aware of. Instead, when God opens your record, he will see only the perfect dental record of Jesus, your substitute. God, having heard the pleas of your son, and having examined the record, which only shows the perfect dental record of his son, then will declare that your teeth are perfectly healthy, even though they're not. You are told to simply believe that God has declared it to be so, so you claim you believe it, and you leave in just as much pain, with just as much disease and decay as when you arrived. That's what penal substitution theology has done to the world. It's a form of godliness with no power to change lives. It heals nothing. It's a fraud. And people continue to get worse, and they have just as much child abuse, pornography use, spouse abuse, and every other form of corruption that we read about from Paul because it's a fraud based on a fraudulent understanding of God's character, his government, and his law. The final message of mercy to the world is to call people to worship the Creator who provides real healing, real restoration, and real recreation of heart. We're reborn with new desires and new motives. Our hearts are set right in loving admiration and trust for him. And we have new longings, desires. And when we slip up, we grieve and go, oh man, the good I want to do, that's not what I did. Uh, it's, it, it, and, the, and the bad I don't want to do. Sometimes I find myself doing, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? Because when we come to a new heart, we have new motives, but sometimes we still have old patterns of behavior wired into our neurobiology that we lived and did for a while that haven't been rewired yet. And we are not cast off in that. We recognize that as symptoms of old habit patterns deeply ingrained. And when, we were, and when we find those taking over in moments to moment, we immediately are sorrowful and go, Lord, please finish the work you've begun in me. And that's the sanctification. But it's only happening from a heart that's been set right with God and loves and wants and longs to be better. Amen. Heart that's justified. Yes. Can I go over a little bit? Because yeah. sure. there's several other, I think, important things. Uh, in Sunday's lesson, the paragraph reads, also in their past existence, Gentiles were taught, were, excuse me, were caught up in a grand feud between themselves and Jews. Paul gives, sense, gives a sense of this entrenched hatred by referring to one symptom of, of it, name-calling. Jews referred to Gentiles with derision, the uncircumcised, and uh, the uh, Jews and the circumcision. And I think that, that's right. This is, this is a symptom of the problem. It's not the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. Now, they're calling it the problem the name-calling. They say it's a symptom, name-calling. What is the actual problem? 
What's the root of name calling? Why do people call names? Circumcised, uncircumcised. What, what, where do you see this happening today? Sabbath breaker, Sabbath keeper. Vegetarian, meat eater. Jewelry wearer, Jezebel. I mean, don't we see the same name calling going on today? And what's the basis of it? Here are the rules. If you're righteous, this is how you behave. This is how you dress. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. It's all a bunch of do's and don'ts. And if you're not doing it, I still love you, sweetie. Make you feel better. Oh, is this what it is? When I was actually looking at that, the text here, what they're saying is actually wrong because the text does not say that the Gentiles were calling them names. The names calling was coming strictly from the Jews. They were calling themselves circumcised. That's right. Gentiles. Thank you for that clarification. Yes, yes. Thank you for that. That's exactly right. Yeah, there is no record that the, the Christians were calling them the, the circumcised. That's right. Yep. But, so, and Paul points out in Romans 14, this very point, that when you have a legal religion, then you argue over, well, some say this day is holy, and some days keep that day. Some say eat this food, and some say don't eat that food. The issue is not whether there's a fact base to any of those questions. The issue is what's the heart motive for doing it? If your heart motive is legal, penal, rule-keeping, immature, childlike, then you may have the right rule that you're keeping and insist that Jesus be taken down off the cross so you can keep the right day of the week. That's the issue. If the heart isn't right, I'm going to tell you, if your heart's not right, it doesn't really matter what rules you're keeping. That's the point that they're trying to make. Uh, Monday's lesson... This is important. I think we really need to cover it because many people in real life today in their relationships don't understand this, and there's some serious misinformation here in the... In, read this paragraph. See if you see the misinformation. What does reconciliation look like? How does it feel to be reconciled? Imagine se- severe estrangement between a mother and a daughter, uh, one that has settled in over a period of years. Imagine the, this rancor being dissolved in a wave of grace and forgiveness and the ensuing reunion between the two. Now, that would, that would be beautiful. That's reconciliation. Yeah, yeah. But notice this. Reconciliation is experienced in the moment when one church member lays aside whatever issues divides from another and acknowledges the other church member as a beloved brother or sister who accepts what's been offered. Who who accepts what has been offered, yeah. Reconciliation is not the mechanical or legal term, but an interpersonal one that celebrates the mending of broken relationships. There's a lot of truth in that, but there's a big lie in that. Yeah. A big lie. Yeah. That it takes only one. Yeah. So it's exactly, I mean, this idea that reconciliation is experienced when at, in the moment when one church member lays aside whatever issue divides from another and acknowledges the other church member as, as a beloved brother or sister. This is, this is completely false. This type of thinking will lead to uh, more abuse, more exploitation, uh, codependency, um, collusion with destructive behavior. It goes along with dysfunction. If this were true, then Judas would have been reconciled because Jesus was loving and forgiving and washed his feet. And Judas would have been reconciled to him and not betrayed him. This is not true, the way this is stated. In order to have reconciliation, it absolutely does require the one who has been offended or wrong to be gracious and forgiving and to love the other person. But reconciliation requires the offender to become trustworthy which is repentance, a change of heart. Without repentance and change of heart, then there cannot be reconciliation. 
the two cannot be at one. They're still at odds because this person's still an enemy, wants to do harm to the other one, even though the other one loves them. Wow. You can't be reconciled. it's, It's incredulous to me that this could have come through, all the editing that had to be done. Do you all see that? And also misses that the loving thing to do is to remove yourself from the relationship so that they can't continue in those behaviors. Well said. That's exactly right. So when you love, not only do you want to take care of the spirit temple and you have a responsibility for God to not allow yourself to be abused so you can be useful to God, there's, there's truth in that. But you also love the other person and you understand that when the other person sins against you, they're hardening their heart, they're searing their conscience, they're warping their character. And if you simply present yourself to that over and over again without any protestations, without any confrontations, without any um, complaints, without any calling to an account, you're simply allowing them to destroy their soul. And many people in abusive relationships become meek mice that their behavior by staying in a relationship like that says to the abusing spouse, it's okay. It's okay. But if you love that spouse, you go, it's not okay. I love you too much to stand by quietly while you are destroying your own soul. Amen. Kind of like God's wrath. He just let him go. Exactly. So in Wednesday's lesson, we're going to jump ahead. There's there's more, I think, very important stuff, but we just don't have time. I want to get this point, and this is about peace. The peace we have with Jesus, from Jesus Christ, the peace he leaves us, the peace that passes understanding. We certainly have peace with God when our hearts are set right with God. We have peace in our own heart when our hearts are set right. We have peace from our guilt, our shame, the, the bad memories, the, the critical voice inside our own head that condemns us. When, when we have been reborn and it's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me, we, we, we experience ourselves differently, don't we? Yes. And we have peace with every other individual who's also been restored in heart to be like Christ. But we don't have peace with everyone. And when you think about this peace that Christ leaves us, it says, peace I give you, not as the world gives. Remember his promise. But he also said this in Matthew 10. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father. A daughter against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Now, do you hear that preached so often? That's Jesus, not me. I'm, 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 instead of explaining, I'm just going to read you my paraphrase from the remedy. I think it becomes self-explanatory. Do not think that I have come to make peace with a selfish world. I have not come to bring peace with selfishness, but a sword to cut selfishness out of the hearts of people. I have come to cut dysfunctional family ties, to free a son from the selfish loyalty to a father's ambitions and feuds, to sever a daughter from the control of an oppressive and manipulative mother, to cut through the fear and hostility a daughter-in-law has toward her mother-in-law. A person's worst enemies are often members of their own family. That's the sort of truth that he brought. To be applied to our heart, to cut dysfunctional, selfish, fear-driven ties and loyalties, to cut us away from the systems of this world and establish us in the kingdom of God. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the creator of reality and your laws and your expression of your character of love that all life and health operate upon. 
May your spirit be poured out to take the victory of Christ, reproduce it in us. Not only give us new desires and motives, but empower us to succeed in daily choices to live out those principles in the way we govern ourselves and treat others. May we be effective in communicating this final message of mercy, and may your church wake up to recognize the Romanization fraud that has taken over Christianity that has a form of godliness but no power. May they embrace the power of the true gospel and the presence of your yourself through your spirit in our lives that we can lighten the world and you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.